Alex Halberstadt, senior writer at the Museum of Modern Art. On June 14th, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests and the COVID-19 pandemic, more than 15,000 people gathered in front of the Brooklyn Museum in New York City to protest the violence, harassment, and discrimination faced by Black trans people in this country. The effects of the systemic bigotry have never been easier to see. Last fall, the American Medical Association designated the killing of trans women of color an epidemic. Nationwide, Black Americans have been dying of COVID-19 at three times the rate of their white neighbors. The Brooklyn Liberation March was the brainchild of West Dakota, a drag queen from Brooklyn. She modeled it after one of the most memorable protests in New York City's history. In 1917, nearly 10,000 people assembled by the NAACP dressed in black and white and silently marched down Fifth Avenue to demand an end to federal tolerance of lynching and other forms of racial terror against black people. The Brooklyn Liberation March turned out to be the largest event for black trans rights in history. The following day, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the 1964 Civil Rights Act protects gay, lesbian, and trans employees from discrimination. Writing in The New Yorker, author Masha Gessen called the ruling the single biggest victory in the history of the LGBTQ rights movement. Last month, I spoke over Zoom to four people with key roles in the Brooklyn Liberation March. I asked them to reflect on this historic event, how it fits into the larger struggle for equity and justice, and the future of Black trans people in this country. We'll start with West Dakota. She graduated from Columbia University with a degree in art, before being crowned Miss Brooklyn at the borough's biggest drag pageant. Vogue described her as a drag superstar with the star power to rival Lady Gaga. I was surprised to learn that the Brooklyn Liberation March marked her first outing as a political organizer. Can you tell us a little bit how the idea for Brooklyn Liberation came about? So I was actually, I was on the phone with my drag mother um, this is around the end of May. Um, it was right, right as the George Floyd protests started happening. You know, she, her name's Mary Cherry. She's a big black drag queen, um, mother of Brooklyn. And um, she was talking a lot about like how she felt uncomfortable, how she felt unsafe sort of attending a lot of these protest actions. I think at the time, a lot of the media coverage was sort of focused on the violence that was occurring, um, the looting, the property damage. Also just being, you know, being a black person in, you know, in one of these crowds, also just being a person in a crowd during a pandemic. There are a lot of different factors at play that she told me that she was fearful of like being out there. Um, and one thing she mentioned was that you know, in other states, they were doing these silent marches. And she was like, that, you know, that seems like something that I would want to do. Like, let me know if something like that is happening in the city. And I just had a moment where I was like, I was like, Mary, we don't have to wait for that to happen. We can, you know, just make it happen for ourselves. Um, and so that's where the wheels really started turning. Was there a reason why you there to be this kind of unifying color? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of actions happening around the city, around the country. This this one in particular, we wanted to really gain focus for um, Black trans issues that were happening. So it was important for me to for there to be something that was distinguishing it from everything else that was happening. Obviously, these issues are like interconnected, but you know, I didn't want it to be confused for just just another March. We're in Pride season right now. Um, that weekend would have been the weekend of Brooklyn Pride. 
Um, so we were really trying to channel the energy of pride into something that felt productive and felt meaningful for the moment. But I think, I think the decision to wear all white was also sort of, you know, working against the sort of rainbow washing that has happened over the years with pride and pride becoming more corporate and more policed. Was there kind of a thought that you had at the beginning about the focal point of the march, the demands, the kind of ideological focus of this being specifically a black trans event? You know, when it first started, my idea was just silent march. And it was really through conversations with um, my friends and fellow organizers that we came to really focus the issue. Fran Tirado, who is one of my um, co-organizers, he brought on Eliel Cruz, um, who works with uh, the Anti-Violence Project. And so much of their work is working with trans people of color, black trans people who are in environments that are unsafe and you know trying to deal with the epidemic of violence against trans people outside of you know the sort of police system so it was really it was really just through building out our team that we came to like focus on these issues we first connected with okra project then marsh p johnson institute glitz for the girls and black trans funds in the arts um, and it was really important for us to sort of do all of the sort of organizing labor for these groups um, and create a moment for them where we could build, we could build a crowd, we could build a stage and really give them the platform that they deserve. I wanted to ask briefly about what happened between the phone conversation that you had with Mary Cherry and kind of the really enormous and widely covered event that happened. How did that organizing occur? How did it unfold? So, I mean, my first, my first few calls actually, or first few emails were um, just sort of putting feelers out. You know, I reached out to um, Brooklyn Pride Inc., which is the organization that, that hosts Brooklyn Pride every year. I actually reached out to Queer Liberation March as well. And then I, I reached out to someone from ACT UP. Um, but it was, really, it was really that first conversation with Fran, who is like newly unemployed, um, but is like the best project manager ever. And he just really jumped into action and really got the idea up off the ground. And then from there, it was just slowly building out different teams. And it's it's interesting to think about the idea of organizing because like, you know, I, like I said, I come from an, a background in nightlife. I think me and Fran are both like producers by trade, um, but neither of us, really have experience in organizing. And it's it's interesting to think about the word organizing just literally as, as in taking people and taking skill sets and putting them together and figuring out where different pieces need to go. I wanted to quickly ask about that remarkable image <coughs> that Mohammed Fayaz created for Brooklyn Liberation yeah. and became kind of viral. Can you talk about how that came to be? One, one thing that I really understand is like, branding and marketing and um you know like i said i i produce events i'm a drag queen so i really understand like aesthetics in that way you know one of the issues that i was seeing with other marches that were happening was that these flyers would just sort of pop up out of nowhere it would sort of spread very widely and like very quickly but then there would be discussions like wait we don't know who organized this we don't know who's involved and there's always this sort of like insecurity about you know who 
who is planning what and who is partaking in what and like if something's going to be safe it just clicked with me like his work speaks to so many people in our community the way that he represents our community makes people feel seen it makes them feel safe and i knew that we could use that to bring people in and give them something that felt familiar and recognizable what did it feel like to see this thing that had kind of like germinated in your head and then became this kind of enormous historic march? It was incredibly surreal. You know, we had been on, on emails, on Google Meets, Zooms, like just constantly, constantly for two weeks. And um, all of my work had sort of been done at that point. I was just showing up to like make sure everything went smoothly. If people had questions that I could maybe answer them and you know I had this moment in the morning where I was like I was like I should be like checking my emails right now I should be like texting people and then I was like you know the, the thing that's going to make me feel most prepared today is like washing my hair and getting dressed up um I think just the the drag queen in me you know I'm so I'm so used to sort of like putting on that armor and like going out into the world so I really just showed up there you know, not not with a lot of expectations. I I was actually having a lot of fear and anxiety the couple days leading up to it. Just in my mind, I was sort of playing through worst case scenario. Showing up there and just seeing all these sort of like pockets of people dressed in white sort of trickling in, all of a sudden like those anxieties just like went away. I was like, I, I knew that it was bigger than what I could have imagined and you know it's like we had we had numbers on our side if anything were to happen. Were there any images from the march that kind of stayed with you that were really memorable? I mean just those sort of like overhead shots the bird's eye view of of the street it's just a sea of people in white that was so just like very striking for me. I guess towards the end of the march so we ended at um, Fort Greene Park and everything sort of just dissipated quietly from there but I, I ended up staying for like an hour or two and just like looking around and seeing pockets of people dressed in white enjoying their time in the park like it felt very healing to see that and I, I could tell that this moment wasn't just about showing up but it was about people healing and coming together as well. I, I felt so proud in that moment um, to be able to create a space for all the trans people, all of the black people, all the queer people that were there who might not always feel safe. You know, I, I heard someone say, I, I believe it was um, Kyan Shaw that this was the most safe that she's ever felt in a crowd. And um, that, that really like hit me, you know. Do you have a hope or like an aspiration for what this event might do in terms of changing society? I think it's sort of twofold. I think just one, having people around the country, around the world, really like activate and begin to be vocal and like really stand up for the trans community. I think that's so, so, so important. Um, obviously like legislation is, is important, but you know, I keep, I keep going back to um, this one quote from Raquel's speech where she said, white queer folks get to worry about legislation, but black queer folks have to worry about their lives. I think at the end of the day, it's like we can, we can fight for legislation, but we really need to like show up and physically protect our communities. And so I really, you know, my, my ultimate hope is just that like communities around the country and around the world feel empowered to like stand up for the trans community.
To learn more about the widely circulated image that drew so many to the march, we spoke to illustrator Mohammed Fayaz. Born and raised in New York, he's a founder of the artist collective Poppy Juice and has become known for popular illustrations that document the lives of queer and trans people of color. His poster for the Brooklyn Liberation March was shared thousands of times on social media and became the image most associated with the event. Can you talk a little bit about Poppy Juice, the artist collective? Yeah, Poppy Juice was founded in the summer of 2013 um, by Oscar Nunez and Adam Rhodes. And they had just kind of felt like they had, been, they had been in the city for a few years and weren't finding spaces that reflected themselves or their community, whether going out in um, the East Village, West Village, Chelsea Hills Kitchen, even in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, um, just not seeing people that look like them or feeling respected or hearing their culture or music respected either. And so one night, the week before, Pride 2013, they were at their local bar, uh, One Last Shag on Franklin Avenue in, in like Bedside, Clinton Hill Quarter. And um, they asked the bar manager who they were friendly with if they can throw a party there. And the bar manager looked at the calendar and was like, okay, you're on. And so uh, it happened to be Pride weekend. Um, and back in 2013, it wasn't, uh, Pride wasn't such a beast of a weekend in New York City. Um, and so that weekend was somehow available and then this past weekend, we celebrated our seven-year anniversary. So just picking up on that idea, on your website, you describe your work as uh, lending an eye into a world traditionally left out of mainstream media. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by that? I identify as a queer Muslim. Growing up, that wasn't two, th those weren't two words I would ever put together or knew I could, that could stand next to each other. And um, it wasn't until I started to meet this community and um, Instagram also was created, I believe, in 2013. And so once these doors started opening and I started realizing that there are people like me, um, I started to understand my work as this vessel to kind of document this experience. And um, for so long, I didn't think there was anyone like me. And to kind of be proven wrong very quickly, um, after being introduced to the scene, I realized that like this is my power and this is my uh, duty to kind of document this time just so that folks can never say that we didn't exist or that we didn't exist in this capacity. Um, not always in trauma, not always in um, really exaggerated stereotypical representations, but just kind of how we are. I noticed that in some of, um, some of your materials, you identify as a community organizer. And I wanted to ask, how does being a community organizer and an artist work together for you? How do those two sort of roles inform each other? Community organizer is a term that it took me a while to come to. Um, our work as Poppy Juice is primarily uh, through our nightlife events. And for a long time, it was hard to identify that as organizing or community organizing until I started to think about the history of um, queer nightlife and its roots as the one place where we could meet. That's where trans folks can be themselves. That's where I think the gender non-binary discourse was born in nightlife. And so I think even for myself. And so once I start to realize that like, just because our community organizing didn't always look like uh, a food pantry or a rally in the street, doesn't mean that it's not what that is. For me, for the posters, um, what is the call to folks to come to this thing? And whether it's celebratory, whether it's rage, whether it is um, just anything to incite emotion in our communities and that, that's kind of what my job is. And it's exciting to think about whether you've been to many of our events, you can rely on the poster to do this thing, or, or if you've never heard of one, the poster is inviting you to this thing. 
Well, let me just shift gears a little bit and talk about Brooklyn Liberation March. How did you first hear about it? And also, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you came to the, that image, that poster you made, which has now been shared so widely and re reproduced so widely. Yeah, so I'm very close friends with West Dakota, a uh, performance artist and drag queen here in Brooklyn. And she, over text message, in the way that we normally communicate, asked me um, if I would be interested in doing the poster for a rally, an upcoming rally she had in mind. And I had already had my full calendar of like both commissions, worked for Poppy Juice, and um, just, you know, my June was kind of set as the month had already started. Um, and at first I was like, Ooh, I don't know, like, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know if I can responsibly take this on. I also asked her if she'd be interested in a text only piece of work. Um, just knowing how the protests have been going for two weeks at this time, thinking that like, if I just throw something together, it can do its job and it can, um, kind of perform this function and not require a lot of me. Um, and so she got back to me and was like, I think that we would love to have characters on it, just knowing that your work speaks to people in this way. And if your work and your characters are in the front and center of this thing, um, it's an instant communication to queer and trans Brooklyn that like, this is who's involved. Uh, one of the, I think a, a reporter for the New York Times said, that artwork is a, if you know, you know moment for most of queer Brooklyn. And so that kind of like direct communication to trans folks, uh, to black trans folks and, our, and their allies this is who's doing this, um, was that introduction. I wanted to ask what the experience of the march was like for you personally, and also um, what images of that day have stayed with you? There's this image of Raquel Willis, one of the speakers, um, on top of this banister, on top of the Brooklyn Museum, speaking to this crowd of what we've come to learn is 15,000. And it, to me, the moment I saw it, it just exuded this timelessness to it, where um, someone in the comments had written about how um, it, it's, it evokes these images of Angela Davis from back in the day. And you think of what it means to have a call to action for Black trans folks and Black trans women are at the front and center of it. Um, on the mic for all these people, no one is speaking for them, no one is translating them, no one is kind of like relaying their message, they're relaying their own message. And that image, I actually would love to get like printed and to hang up in my home because it's so powerful. And it speaks to the, that moment where um, the organizers, the majority of whom were not black, were able to pool their talent, pool their resources, pool their, pool their, um, their network and their spread to kind of just like, um, not, not even create a stage because these organizations and these women have their own stages, but to amplify to just like do whatever we could to make their own existing valid, super powerful voices even louder. Has this experience changed you or made you see your role in the world any differently? Having gone to a few protests at that point had just kind of like reinvigorated my work. Um, it's always been a symbiotic relationship, whether it's like event posters that are inspired by the crowd that comes through or knowing who I was gonna see there on that Sunday. Um, that kind of role as a vessel really helps me understand that I'm bigger than me and my drawing tablet and my Photoshop. I'm bigger than these hands. In this moment of revolution, what can everyone bring to the table? 
We next spoke to Brooklyn native Cayenne Dorishow, one of the featured speakers of the Brooklyn Liberation March. She founded the grassroots organization Glitz in 2015 to provide support to queer and trans people who are struggling with threats of violence, homelessness, unemployment, and a lack of health care. In the past several months, she has raised more than a million dollars towards opening housing and social service centers for Black trans people. The author of a Caribbean cookbook, Cooking in Heels, she's also working on a second book titled Falling into the Fire. She spoke to me from a nail salon in Brooklyn. Please be aware that the audio quality of this conversation can be a little choppy. I love what I do. I help community. I build community. I started out actually bringing community members from around the world to safety to get people out of countries like Uganda and Kenya and Australia and Venezuela. And that's how it all started um, for COVID-19 was another act of desperation. A community member had actually contacted COVID and, and needed help, immediate help, because they had no place to stay. As a community, we've always had to rely on other resources in terms of housing. This will be the first Black-owned, trans-owned establishment in New York City. I wanted to ask you how you got and how you and your organization became involved with the Brooklyn Liberation March. Um, I've been a leader in New York City for over 20 years. I love all of our kids. These young activists generate because of activists like me. It's literally watching the youth take control and build what looks strong in in New York City, to actually put together a march like that of its magnitude, unprecedented in New York. When these kids ask me to do this, of course I have to. I gave I gave probably one of the most powerful speeches. I'm talking about equity, talking about Black trans lives. I've been giving speeches for over 15, 20 years. Uh, something I do without writing or being, I don't need to write it down. I don't need a ghost writer. I speak from experience and I speak to the tone of not only the consumer, but the tone of a community member. What, what were your impressions of the march? I mean, how did it feel to be there? Were you surprised by the turnout? I was surprised considering I was raised three blocks from here. My mom lives in Grand Army Plaza. I had been cast out in those streets at Grand Army Plaza. I had learned about my life in Grand Army Plaza. It was full circle. To come back to where I, one of the places I was raised, and give a speech. The pride, you could imagine, was an out-of-body experience. To look out over the crowd, which I waited, I refused to, to even go and see the crowd. I was sitting up at the top of the museum in a corner. I had no idea that it was 15,000 people. I, I didn't get up to look. And when I did, I immediately broke down in tears. Um, my handlers and everybody made sure I was okay. For an individual who was raised in Park Slope to actually come full circle, it was life-changing. 
And I knew this message would not only be my message, but it would be the message of many people like me. The coverage of the event, you know, a lot of people have described the event as being historic. It was probably the largest event for black trans lives anybody's ever seen. Uh, and the following day, there was a Supreme Court ruling that, um, that made workplace discrimination against queer and trans people illegal. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, Cayenne, do you think that reflects both the march and the ruling, a larger shift happening in, a, in the culture towards trans people? I think that ruling was ca carefully calculated, to be honest. They came up with a ruling that really makes no sense at all. When employment as a trans person has been an obstacle. So is that ruling really going to help when you have corporate America that deny someone like me a job? I had to become a founder in order to get where I'm at today. The bottom line is I became a founder because we didn't have chances, because it was easier for me. Do you think things are changing for the better or worse for Black trans people in America? Considering the amount of deaths that we've had, we'll get it to a better place when policing is really done right, because it's never been done right when it comes to the affairs of Black trans women or trans women, period. How we're policed is unlike any, anything in, the, in this world. Um, Leilene Polanco was put in isolation in Rikers Island. She subsequently died in Rikers Island. The police got full acknowledgement that she should not be in isolation because of her health, but she was still put into isolation in a to have a seizure and die. That is the worst policing ever. But even when our when we're arrested, we're sexually assaulted. We are literally pinpointed. Like if you got arrested in one precinct, that everybody may know that you had been arrested. The cops have been known to share girls to arrest them after they have sexually abused them. And the list goes on and on. Are there any images from that day, from that event, that have stayed with you? I think the image of the children, all the people of color, all the Black people being called to the front and actually coming to the front, iconic. Um, I think the march, when I was descending from after my speech and going downstairs, was one of the most beautifulest things I've ever seen. To see a sea of people, white, brown, tan, all, like, literally, part. So the speakers could start the march. The Black, young, queer people could start the march. I think that that moment of, of being that day was one of the most iconic things I had seen in a very long time. Finally, we spoke to activist and media strategist Raquel Willis, who gave one of the event's most stirring speeches. She's the director of communications for the Miss Foundation, the former executive editor of Out Magazine, and a former national organizer for Transgender Law Center. She's also a prolific writer. St. Martin's Press will release her first book, titled The Risk It Takes to Bloom, in 2021.
I want to talk about this Brooklyn Liberation March that happened in June. How did you become involved in it? I became involved with the Brooklyn Liberation uh, March after being asked by um, the initial organizers, West Dakota, Fran Torado, Elio Cruz, um, Ian Field Stewart, many other folks. And they brought me in um, not only to speak on the day of, but also just to get my advice and ideas on strategy as someone who's been an organizer for uh, several years now. Um, so it was, it was very much an honor to be asked to be a part of this formation. And obviously it, it grew into what became a historic day uh, for Black transgender people, but I think the LGBTQ plus community at large. I don't know if we anticipated such a response and such a presence of folks, um, but I do think that it, would, it just came at the right time when we wanted to have a more nuanced conversation on how all Black lives are in danger these days, you know, and, and oftentimes uh, victims of police brutality or victims of white supremacy um, have to fit a certain identity to resonate on a larger level. And oftentimes it's not the Black transgender victims like Tony McDade um, or the ones that die at the hands of community members. So this was powerful. I mean, the day of felt energetic. It felt revitalizing. It felt like we reignited um, a fire that many of our forebears of the movement had at the Stonewall riots. You know, we were gathering to center Black trans folks in a way that we haven't been centered for decades and decades. And it was heartening to see so many folks gathered that day, you know, with clarity around the purpose, clarity around needing to elevate Black trans power. Um, and so I was so honored to be able to speak because I wanted to speak to our rich history. You know, we're not starting from zero. You know, we have Black trans figures that we can look back to and lean on for strength. Um, I wanted to speak to the fact that this violence and discrimination doesn't just happen out of nowhere. You know, there have been structural and systemic ways in which uh, trans misogyny has existed and transphobia has existed in, in our various institutions. The leadership of Black trans folks has not been respected and resourced in the way that it needs to be. And so essentially I was saying, time's up. We're done, we're not waiting anymore. We have all of the brilliance and capability and the beauty to find the solutions. Folks just have to get on board and support us in, in the work that we've been doing. I wanted to ask about this notion of this event being historic. And it was followed the, next, the very next day by the Supreme Court ruling, which surprised many observers you know, banning workplace discrimination against queer and trans people, uh, which is, which some commentators have described as the single largest victory in the history of the LGBTQ movement. 
Uh, do you think that both of these events reflect a larger shift happening in the culture? I think in some ways they do, but I, I think that they represent different shifts. One of the things I said in my speech at Brooklyn Liberation, which got some flack, was that white queer folks get to worry about legislation while black queer folks, while black trans folks are worrying about our lives. And I meant what I said. <laughs> I do think that it is often of the white imagination to be able to see yourself in a system like the U.S. government um, or to see recourse in it. But when I think about the ways that Black trans women are being murdered, Black trans folks, Brown trans folks are being murdered, literally uh, we learned about two more Black trans women today. Um, and I don't even have to date the day because this is two weeks after we learn about two Black trans women on the same day as well. Legislation is important. I will never deny that. But the ways that other systems of oppression, like white supremacy, homophobia, and transphobia still plague us, that kind of equality will never be equally and evenly distributed unless we tackle those systems of oppression. I wanted to ask, and this is, and I hope this doesn't sound like a despairing question, but as you said, violence against trans people of color in this country has been described as an epidemic. Do you think things are changing for the better or for the worst for Black trans folks in this country? Even though I'm often discussing what is difficult in our society, I consider myself a hopeful person. I consider myself an optimist. I do think things in general are getting better. I think it's hard to always remember that when you're constantly hearing about another person being murdered. But I think what's different now is that we are realizing our power in different ways. And what's most important to me is that we have space to build that power stronger than it ever has been before. And so that means pushing folks to reallocate energy and resources into supporting the leadership of Black trans people who have been on the front lines of this epidemic for far before the American Medical Association officially deemed it an epidemic. The other thing I will say is that we call it an epidemic but our institutions do not react as if it's an epidemic. COVID-19, this global pandemic, um, this health crisis has had experts working on it, task force forces working on it, all institutions hands on deck to end it. The epidemic of violence against trans women of color has not had a fraction of that attention and energy put onto it. And that tells me that we are often just being fed lip service by folks who have the power, energy, and resources to actually transform these conditions. Mm -hmm.